welcome to the Insights in Focus podcast. I'm Philippa Lamb, and this time we're examining whether sustainability assurance is just too expensive for many businesses. Back in April 2022, the UK became the first G20 nation to bring recommendations from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, that's TCFD, into law. Now, while TCFD requirements only apply to our largest organisations, there is increasing pressure from a variety of stakeholders for SMEs to follow suit. And of course, as the sustainability of entire supply chains comes under greater scrutiny, that pressure will inevitably become more widespread. So how can organisations navigate sustainability assurance at a time of economic instability and tight margins? And how can accountants and financial professionals ease their transition to wider forms of reporting and disclosure? Richard Spencer is ICAW Director of Sustainability. I'm delighted to say he's with me, as is Heather Buchanan, co-founder of Bankers for Net Zero, and Vandana Saxonaporia, ICAW Advisor and member of the B20 Action Council for ESG in Business. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. Shall we kick off with a wide view on ESG reporting? I'd really like to talk about purpose and challenge. I mean, Richard, what's your take on that? ESG reporting essentially is about the financially material risks, so the enterprise value that an organisation faces. So it's the risks to your business value of climate change, biodiversity loss, growing inequalities. And that's essentially there to disclose into capital markets, to the providers of capital. Now, where, where it will, of course, affect SMEs is not so much direct reporting, but through the supply chain, because organisations that are having to make TCFD disclosures or in the future under ISSB standards will be having to gather information from their supply chain, from SMEs. So whilst SMEs may not have to report into markets, they certainly will have to report up their supply chain. OK, Vandra? It's really interesting, depending on where you are in the world, what the importance and um, the idea behind the reporting is. In India, where I'm based, the government has been bringing in legislation since 2011. And it is ESG, but the focus is on the S, the social. And they're very concerned about how are we getting more people into employment? So when you look at BRSR, which is the Business Responsibility and Sustainability Reporting that's come out in India, it's got 141 indicators for the top thousand companies, so the largest companies yeah. in India. Again, as Richard said, they've got to report on their supply chain. So the pressure isn't on the SMEs as yet, but the purpose, I would say, is slightly different. Heather, as we're understanding from these comments so far, there's no standardisation. There's a lot of confusion. I mean, how big a problem is that? Oh, it's a huge problem. And so my favourite kind of analogy we like to bring here is that our modern accounting system was, you know, 1497 was the first book on modern accounting. So we've had over 500 years to really get it sorted so everybody understands a P&L and a balance sheet and, and those kind of indicators of what value and risk are. Now, we're fundamentally redefining that in a matter of decades if less. So it is a huge issue and, and interestingly to the point for about where the importance lies from financial institutions perspective, obviously banks under the Net Zero Banking Alliance have made commitments to decarbonise their financed emissions by 2050 and what that means in reality is that financial institutions are now on the hook for every single mortgage, every overdraft, 
every business loan, every corporate loan, including their supply chain and understanding those. So it's much more at this point focused, of course, on the E because that's about decarbonization. But even there, we don't have an agreed methodology and reporting framework for SMEs. And if we want finance to continue flowing into the real economy and for financial institutions to still understand what risk they're exposed to, they're going to need to know those numbers. And it will be down to every mortgage and every small business. So this this is something, again, people don't really realise it's it's coming down the line, but it certainly is. So it's a work in progress. There's no standardisation. But obviously reporting's here already, isn't it, Richard? So danger of regulating by reporting? We've got to remember that the annual report is a disclosure to the providers of capital. And it's very important to hold on to that because we are in danger of kind of regulating by reporting. So if the only tool in your box is a hammer, everything begins to look like a nail story. And actually, there is a whole complex system of of market in levers that can be applied. So you could use tax, you can use rationing. So as in as in trading systems, you can use legislation. Then there are the pressures of strategy, consumer behavior, your supply chain, rating agencies, and so on and so on. And, and so you need not just to think about the reporting, but to think about what is available to you to drive market behaviour. And that's a combination, as I said, of soft and hard policy tools. It's important because we, we're in danger of overburdening the annual report and cluttering it in a way that providers of capital won't be able to see what they need to see. And I think what Heather was saying is very important because there are two additional dimensions. Not We've got into climate, but then there's biodiversity, there are growing inequalities, so you've got that dimension expanding. But equally... If you look at the CSRD in Europe, if you look at the transition plan framework, if you look at other things, there's also a move to asking businesses to report on their impacts. So not just the risks they face, but the impacts they are having. So you've got two dimensions that are rapidly expanding and we could end up with an annual report that just can't cope with all of this. So there is there is this idea of reporting as opposed to just the report. And we've got to think about how we how we best make that work. I mean, you've painted a very clear picture of just how complex this landscape is. I mean, thinking again from an SME perspective, can we put some numbers on it? I mean, how costly is this for smaller firms? <laughs> how long is a piece of string? But don't forget also, there is there is not just the financial cost, but there is, in asking for all this information, are you diverting people from doing stuff? It's you know, time. We don't want to create yeah. a beautiful Fabergé egg that's absolutely stunning and gorgeous, but completely useless. What's core here is you need to have done something in order to report it. So it's very important that we are doing that something rather than actually distracting everyone into multiple layers of reporting. Everyone's in the early stages of this. I mean, thinking about SMEs, are there common mistakes you see them making now? I think the danger for SMEs is the bewildering array of demands for information. It's that absence of standardisation that is just so important because the mistakes will be mistakes not of their own making half the time. It'll be mistakes around what were the definition of the of the information you were looking for? What was the scope of that? What were the parameters? Was it in the right shape? Were definitions the same? I mean, it, it becomes very, very complex. So the, the mistakes could be ones that are just going down rabbit holes. I mean, Heather, as I said, I mean, UK's first G20 country to bring TCFD into law. 
presumably I mean, other nations are going to face the same problems, aren't they, once they follow suit. But does that put the UK at a temporary disadvantage? Not necessarily. No, I, I don't believe so. A, because there's an extraordinary amount that's actually going on in the voluntary sector as well. And if regardless, anything, yeah. Yeah, regardless, or the, the commercial sector. So you, you have your largest financial institutions and your kind of major companies in the world kind of saying we're doing this. And if anything, a lot of the feedback that we often get is that governments, you know, even when made commitment, need to go further and give more clarity to the markets. So I've seen a real shift, particularly since COP26, in that mindset where firms are really saying, right, no, we just need clarity and then we'll move with, you know, then the whole market can move together at the same time. Fantana, you mentioned other, you've mentioned stakeholders wanting different things. Mm. Um, thinking about nations, you talked about India. What about Europe? Ah, <laughs> Europe is probably more of Richard's expertise. I'm probably more about Asia. Do you have thoughts on that, Richard? The difference you're seeing under the European Union, the uh, Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, is the difference between that and what we've currently got with the ISSB is that impact piece. So the reporting under the ISSB framework, that's the International Sustainability Standards Board, sorry, hundreds of acronyms. Yes, it's um, that sort of territory, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there is, you're reporting on the financially material risks to your enterprise value. So it's all about risk. Whereas under the CSRD... The, the requirement is to go beyond that to what's called double materiality, which is not just the risks that these things we call sustainability pose to your organisation, but the impact that you are having as well. And I think underlying that is a, is a kind of a different view of capitalism, if you like, from what is a, a shareholder version of capitalism, which you see very, very strongly in the United States, to what you might call a stakeholder capitalism which is what we see in much more in Europe, and I'm, I'm grossly simplifying here, but yeah. which is about not just shareholders and the providers of capital, but your other stakeholders, consumers, workers, nature itself. Yeah, Heather, are there particular issues in the States that you see? I think in, in the States it's been much more kind of politicised to a certain extent and there is a, a fairly kind of visceral feeling that ESG is interfering in the markets rather than becoming a, a new framework. So I guess there, there's a, a level of kind of extreme resistance. I would say from the experiences that certainly we work very closely with regulators and government in, in the UK and, and that environment doesn't really exist so much here. They're, everybody's very much on board with the fact that actually if everybody has to get together and figure out new standards, that's not anti-competitive behaviour. That's just moving the market to the next stages that it needs to go to. So I think there's general acceptance that there is that, that wider, almost stakeholder capitalism is now part of the narrative. OK, but it adds to the layers of complexity, doesn't it? It does. Just to add something as well, it's really interesting hearing the perspective from the UK and from Europe and um, from the States. It's been really interesting being part of the B20 and looking at the narrative that's coming out from Asia and Africa. So there's been this wider discussion about the global south and the global north. And for the global south, whilst emissions are a concern and obviously countries in Asia and Africa are probably going to suffer as much, if not more, than other countries as climate change continues, the bigger pressing issue is about people and population and inequality. And so going back to what I'd said before, I think there are different stakeholders and the governments of, I think, the global south are saying, yes, we've got to think about climate, but Global North, you've caused most of that. And we know that you want to deal with it, 
But from our perspective, we've got to make sure that these standards or indicators are giving us the information to be able to help with the inequality, to help with the raw materials, et cetera, et cetera, rather than necessarily climate as much. Yeah, you mentioned that in India, the focus is on jobs. Yeah, so it's not just India. It's um, It appears that Prime Minister Modi is talking more for the global south. So he's talking about Africa as well, and he's talking about parts of Asia. So specifically, how does that play out in a different way there then? So what they're doing is they are encouraging all the large companies to talk about how they're getting more SMEs involved in their supply chain. So for example, Pune, the city that I live in, is a very big automotive hub. So when they've got the Mercedes and the BMWs, et cetera, et cetera, they're not necessarily encouraging the supply chain to come from Europe. They're saying, how can we create the supply chain here in India? How can we get smaller companies to make one part that could then add into another small company that's adding into the larger the larger product? And so there's a lot of reporting around that. How are you supporting the supply chain? So how open do you think different areas of the world are realistically going to be then to any form of standardisation of approach on this? Because as you say, I mean, the priorities, they're radically different, aren't they? I think there's an underlying piece, which is about what I'd call justice. That's different from fairness. Fairness is we're all on the same starting line and we've all, we've all just got to cut our emissions. That doesn't work because some countries are way back from the starting line. So justice is about bringing you know, putting the resources around them so that they've got the same starting line, if you like. Now, that, that involves money. And that, that's the big unspoken thing here is it comes down to the money. And is the OECD going to meet its promise made in Paris of $100 billion a year to the Global South to enable them to decarbonise? That's what it'll come down to in the end. Whether there are re- different reporting standards or not, that's an irrelevance. I, that's not what we should be focusing on at all because the reporting will fall out in the end, you know? And what's um, your expectation on that? My expectation is is that is going to... A COP28, that's going to be the big difficult piece because you've not just got the OECD's commitment to help decarbonise, we've now got loss and damage. And we're still bickering about who's going to pay for loss and damage. So my expectation is pretty gloomy that that's going to take a lot of political will to achieve and you won't get the commitments on emissions until you've achieved that. So that's going to suck quite a lot of oxygen out of the room. You've got to get the money. You follow the money. You always follow the money. Absolutely. And and, and Richard's probably more of an expert in this area than me. I would say also that just as a perspective back to the kind of reporting piece, we're involved in a project that ICAW has been involved with, Project Perseus, which is about trying to get a shareable primary data. So the one thing, electricity, and that's an extraordinarily complex process. And it seems like it, it sounds very simple. And, and when we're talking about having to get an entire market to get around one piece, and that's just the, the absolute kind of thin wedge. So where are we going to go from there? And how the complexities around that is quite extraordinary. Give us the details. So this is what about measuring, about metrics, about what, what's it's, it's, involved? It's about measuring. It, it's, it's literally just about using the principles of open banking to get primary data from electricity providers, we're just doing electricity in the first instance, and even just that smart meter data, to the relevant stakeholders with the permission of the SME, it could be a consumer, whatnot. So going to your accounting package, going to your financial services package, to your bank, anything that can feed into the carbon calculators and create with accurate, assurable data. Because right now, we're just working on proxy data and guesswork. Estimates. Yep. So there's a big tech piece there. 
it's, it's not even necessarily a tech piece, but an accuracy piece and, and assure, something that's scalable and assurable. And interestingly, having spoken to certain colleagues that work primarily in, in Latin America, they're very interested in this concept, but they're saying, well, actually, the SMEs and art area, that won't be the primary data source. And we're going to have to look at, we can look at using the same rails, but actually you'll have different commonalities with SMEs working in more developing nations. So there's a spectacular amount of complexity around this. And I think it's quite extraordinary when you speak to people and they say, what are you trying to do? We're trying to do one thing. And it seems really simple. And even that's, you know, just the, the tip of the iceberg. And that's in a very developed country that's got smart meter data so we can get half hourly information and it's all very accurate. Once we start to expand that out, I mean, how... It becomes very convoluted. Let me just ask a wider question about standardisation on measuring. You talked about electricity, but that is clearly an issue across the piece in every area. So thoughts on how that might be achieved? Because the global difficulties <laughs> that you've all you know, so clearly explained <laughs> to us, it makes it sound like an enormous mountain to climb. It does feel like an enormous mountain to climb. And I mean, the, the positive thing here, isn't it, for the profession is while a lot of their functions are disappearing with AI. Here is this whole new savannah yes. that needs all of their skill set. And I'd say for the accountancy profession, there isn't a skill gap. There's a knowledge gap. And there's, a, would say, a mindset gap, which is that piece about thinking about the big place rather than just thinking about the entity you're in, thinking about the whole system, about creating that safe operating space for the economy. And ethics that you were alluding to earlier. <clears throat> and the ethics, yeah. but the skills are all there. And so this is why we're so passionate about members being able to do that and the work that we're doing to get them up to speed. But it's, you know, as Heather says, it, it you just sort of feel something like electricity would be so easy. <laughs> and, then, and then you get on to many of the social issues and that becomes, as soon as you start to think about humans and, and so on, then that becomes even more difficult. So you're seeing accountants as practitioners in this space, but also it almost sounds as if you want to see them as ambassadors too. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that happening. I think one of the challenges though is that I think ICAW is well ahead of the game when it comes to sustainability. And I think ICAI in India, the Indian Institute, is quite ahead of its game too. The whole systems thinking piece is actually quite new to chartered accountants, isn't it? Very much so. And so bringing that into the syllabus, getting people to understand that area is quite tough. And in somewhere like India and, and the East, where they're very much driven by regulation and compliance, it's even harder for them to see and think about a system. And a mindset change. And a mindset change, yeah. I was just going to say, kind of getting back to the, the point of SMEs, I mean, often the SMEs, the, your your bookkeeper, your accountant, your your advisor, that's often their kind of first port of call. And, you know, within a, a smaller community, obviously, it, that's, you know, incredibly important. So having those skill sets within that, because that's often where people go for their first bit of formal advice if they're going to take it after, after Google, obviously. But it's also really hard because it's not like um, a switch where you learn a debit and credit and it works. It, it's so, so different. It really is a mindset shift. And I think the only way to do that is to have people doing it over a period of time. It's not something you can just do like a one hour course. Is this where it. you get greenwashing creeping in? Because people want to turn it into a process, a tick box, a thing. We're doing this the now compliance. this week. <laughs> and yes. So is, th is that a danger there? Definitely. I think also there's a certain element of this. And this probably goes back to the granularity of the data where you have people kind of trying to, to do the right thing. And I've seen a lot of firms almost not moving, saying because they're afraid of being accused of greenwashing despite best endeavours. And again, back to the, the P&L, you know, it's like having a, a P&L and because the 
data that sits behind that isn't granular. If somebody goes and goes, well, actually, how did you come up with that that top line number there? And they go, well, actually, if you look through it, we just use estimates based on X, Y, and so Z. So the rig is not there. So the rig is not there. there. So that yeah, because yeah, it, it just it doesn't exist. And so that works as as a kind of counter to to all the kind of good work that people are doing. That's so. a really important point because we're asking for a massive thing here. We're asking really for the whole economy which has never before thought, for example, if we just take nature. Since the Industrial Revolution, we've basically been turning nature into cash. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you included nature into the calculations of growth, we've probably been in recession since the Industrial Revolution. Right, so we're changing from a mindset that completely excluded that. And then you put people on top of it, so exclude that, to wanting to include it. I mean, it's mind-bending the kind of shift. So what we really need is businesses experimenting at the forefront, be they small, medium or large, experimenting and, and kind of forgiving the mistakes. But that's very counterintuitive for accountants, isn't it? It, you is. Know, <laughs> it is. It is, but I think that has to happen because it'll only be through, you know, the, oh, we made these estimations. Well, how did you make those estimations? Could we do that better? You know, it's that, it's that iterative progression to something that is much more precise that, that's needed and to allow people to make mistakes because, I mean, this is a bit trite, but, you know, that is how you learn. But it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Because you, there's, no, there's no rigour in the data, even with the mindset change. As Heather says, you're slightly having to fudge the numbers. It looks like greenwashing. It's a tough challenge, this, isn't it? And the whole narrative needs to change around it so that people feel free and protected to do it. Allowing for the transparency would help overcome the greenwashing. But absolutely, as Heather says, you know, you've got businesses that are terrified of making disclosures because they're not 100% certain. We don't need 100%. I guess if you're explicit about that, yeah. that's fair enough, yeah. isn't it? Vandana? I think the other thing to realise is it's almost like the beginning of the IFRS revolution, right? It was like, you know, forgive me for saying it, but the blind leading the blind. And so we're in this situation. I, this is something I see in Asia. There's a lot of reporting going on. And Richard, as you said, there are mistakes being made. And some of those mistakes are not being picked up by the people who are providing assurance. But it's OK, because at least it's better than not having any information. And so there's there's kind of this understanding that for the next two or three years, it's going to be a bit hit and miss as the experts learn how to actually check for the greenwashing. And I think the other thing that I'm finding, like 92% of SMEs in India are actually saying they're actively participating in the journey towards ESG and sustainability because they're given the carrot approach rather than the stick approach. And so, you know, the government, I think, is trying to get the people who are giving the assurance to work with the companies to find a way of making it work. And it will take a few years and that's OK. So it's hearts and minds, isn't yeah. it, first? Yeah. OK. I mean, ICAW is obviously very active in this area, Richard. What actions are you taking to support members who are lost in the reeds with a lot of this? We produce a huge amount of material on our website so that, for instance, we have an SME Climate Hub and that provides basic materials. For firms, we worked with Net Zero Now and a couple of the other professional bodies, ACCA and AAT, to develop a protocol for firms on how to get to a net zero footprint. We started developing learning materials. So last year we launched our sustainability certificate and we are currently looking at how can we produce a, an ESG product for 
particularly the mid-tier firms, the idea of how do you take a leadership role in this? How do you engage your clients through to what sort of um, learning materials do you need around ESG reporting, assurance, advisory? And then what are the other things that you might need? So do you need tech solutions? Do you need a pool of experts? And we're looking at, at that. So that that's the sort of wraparound there. And we will look at also what kind of learning materials can we develop for members in business which is a huge constituency for us too so there's a lot there yes yes there is a lot there and and there's a huge amount for us to do you know that's what i was saying before is when whenever i look at this i just think here's this tiny little thing we're doing and the amount of the effort we need to put in to solve the whole problem is it's just you you kind of look at a great big wall you know but it's interesting hearing you talk around the table you've all articulated the many many difficulties of this but i get a sense there's optimism in the room that you feel progress is being made. Is that fair? Or am I being overly optimistic myself? I think there is. I mean, there's some really innovative partnerships happening. So, for example, Unilever joined forces with Ernst & Young and the UK government to do a programme in India where they've now trained up 7 million people um, and their target is 15 million. They've they've spent about £45 million pounds How long has that on taken? Helping, I think it's over the last seven years. Okay. And they've helped create smaller businesses that can fit into the Unilever ecosystem. So what I see, which gives me a great deal of warmth, is seeing chartered accountants working with companies, working with government, doing collaborative action, because no one organisation is going to be able to solve this. When I use the word optimism, Heather looked a bit dubious. So. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I mean, we really have no choice but to be optimistic at the end of the day, certainly if we're going to get anything done. So, realistic um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I think the drive towards transparency in the level of transparency that's actually going to be required for this is an extraordinary shift. Again, it's it's back from your kind of, it, it's built into our language. We talk about the bottom line. Actually, it's not the bottom line. You know, I mean, John Elkington, you know, many years ago, decades ago, tried to really introduce the, the idea of the triple bottom line. And now that's really starting to, to build into it. I think one thing that would be quite interesting as a pivotal shift here is if we get to the point right right now as a company particularly as a larger company you can look better if you're not looking through your supply chain and if you're not doing the work you can kind of do it and so we almost need to shift that on its head and say well actually if you're not looking and you're not working on it you're red and then the, and allow for that space for companies that are doing the work to show that okay you, you might be starting at red but you're you're on a journey that's going to move you someplace and I think that we need to that's probably a key thing we need to switch right now in terms of reporting because you still have that bit where people just go well actually it all looks fine doesn't it but it's because they're not really looking so a little bit of a reputational stick as well as carrot yes definitely. So, Richard, Heather, Vanda, thanks for being with us. It is a fast-evolving area. We will definitely revisit it in the future. Looking ahead to future podcasts, the next Insights podcast, sharing news and updates from across accountancy and ICAW, that will be with you in early July. Join us for that one. Thanks for being with us this time. And if you haven't already subscribed to the series on your favourite podcast app, please do so. You'll never miss an episode. Thanks. Thanks.